Yes, and amen. Welcome to our seventh birthday celebration. It is wonderful to see each and every one of you. Now, as we kick off our party this morning, I want you to imagine your ideal birthday. I want you to think about like what your day would look like if it was perfect. It was the best celebration imaginable of you being on earth for a whole nother year. For some of you guys, that would involve a huge blowout birthday party. You want the room to be loud and buzzing with people and energy and excitement. But for others of you, the perfect birthday would be a little more laid back. You don't need a big gathering of people in your honor. Maybe you just want to spend some quality time with your immediate family or some of your closest friends. You, you might want to go on an epic trip for your birthday. Or maybe you're like, could I just sleep in, please? <laughs> Tired moms, I see you. I get it. You're like, could I go on an epic trip where I also got to sleep a lot? Let's put those two together. It sounds like a good birthday to me, right? Uh, maybe you want tons of gifts. You love receiving gifts. It doesn't even matter the value of them. It just feeds you. It's your love language. And for others of you, you're like, you know what? Friends, family, save your money. Just would you write me a thoughtful message? like in a card or on social media or something, that would fill my tank. That would make me very, very happy. Now, we might have different ideas about what would constitute a birthday celebration that was absolutely perfect for us, but we can all agree on one thing, and that is it's got to include delicious food, okay? Yes. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Whether it's cake or steak or a milkshake, I, don't, I couldn't think of a fourth thing that rhymed, but I got three, which was pretty good. Uh, no matter what it is, you can't have a great birthday party without also having good food. If it's bad food, it's going to bring the party down just a little bit. That's part of the reason that for our seventh birthday celebration here at Connect, we have all of these delicious treats that are available to you. Amber told you about the cake bake or cupcake and cookie bake off that we were having. And uh, even if you didn't bake anything and you're not participating in the competition, you get to eat all that stuff. So after we get done in the service, the lobby is going to be full of all sorts of baked treats and delicious goodies. It's free. We want you guys to take it, to eat it, to enjoy it, and to celebrate with us. And so I thought, you know, since like great food is such an important component of, a, of an ideal or a perfect birthday celebration, that we would spend some time this morning looking at a couple of passages of scripture that deal with food. They deal with meals that people had. And then we're going to eat together. What I'm hoping is that by the time you leave, you're going to have a lot of bites of food this morning, but the bites of food that you're going to have that are the best, most satisfying, most delicious and meaningful to you, they're not going to be coated in icing as awesome as those bites will be. They're not going to have birthday candles on them as great as those are. No, the best bite you're going to have today is something we're going to do right here in the room together before we get finished. Okay, let's look at this passage. Luke chapter number 24. I told you it's about a meal. Let me set a little bit of context for you. Um, the, the, the verses that we're about to read happen on Resurrection Sunday, the very first Easter. So this is two or three days after Jesus had been crucified. It's the morning in which he has risen from the grave, but the disciples don't really know it yet. There are some rumors. There's some women that are talking and they're saying they went to the tomb and it was empty, and, but people can't make sense of it. Many of the disciples haven't even heard those rumors yet. So they're starting the day, sad, feeling defeated, their rabbi, their, the person that they believed was going to be the Messiah and who was the son of God. He's dead cold in the ground as far as they know. So we pick up the story here in Luke chapter number 24, verse 13. This is what the scripture says. 
It says, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. Can we just stop for a moment and thank God for cars? Okay. I, <laughs> I don't want to walk seven miles. Okay. Anyway, sorry. That has nothing to do with the message, but I just needed to thank God for a moment. As they, these two followers of Jesus, walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened, all the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, arrest of Jesus, all that stuff. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But verse 16 says, God kept them from recognizing him. Hmm. All right, let's jump down to verse 28. Verse 28, the, the scripture says, and in the intervening passage, they're talking to this guy. They don't know he's Jesus. We'll come back to what's said in just a moment. By the time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he were going to go on, like past the town of Emmaus. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So Jesus went home with them. Then in verse 30, as they sat down to eat, he took bread and blessed it. Then he broke it. And he gave it to them. And verse 31 says, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, the Bible says Jesus disappeared. They said to each other, what, what the heck is going on here? Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And so within the hour, they were on their way seven miles back to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them. And they said, the Lord has really risen. Mm, man, this passage is so fascinating, you guys. I love this section of the scripture. What's most interesting to me is that here in verse number 16, if we can put that on the screen, in verse 16, it says, God prevented these people, these men, these disciples from recognizing Jesus. Now, I am naturally curious, okay? So when I read something like that, my brain immediately starts working. I'm thinking, but why though? Like, why did God prevent these men from recognizing Jesus? In fact, Jesus made many post-resurrection appearances to the disciples. He showed up and showed himself to the disciples many times over from the time that he resurrected from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And here's what's fascinating. This is the only time he shows up incognito. This is the only time that God does a Jedi mind trick on the disciples. Every other time Jesus reveals himself or he shows up, he appears post-resurrection. You know what happens? The disciples are sitting around, they're doing their thing and Jesus just appears in the room and they're all like, ah, where'd you come from? Right? So what made this moment so special? Why in this one circumstance with these two disciples, would God prevent them from recognizing Jesus? Why go through all of this? Wouldn't it have been better if Jesus had just shown up next to these guys? They're walking for seven miles. They've got lots of time that they can talk with one another and they could hear directly from Jesus himself. My mind really wants to know why he waits to identify himself to the disciples. Now it's possible, okay, that the reason that God chose to do it this way was that if Jesus had appeared on Resurrection Sunday to these two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus, that as soon as they saw him and recognized it was Jesus, they might have been so over 
overcome with excitement and emotion that like they would not be able to focus on whatever it was that he was about to tell them. You know what I'm saying? You can imagine them being like, Jesus, is that really you? Oh my gosh, what happened? We saw you on the cross and we saw them take you down and you were dead. Like you were truly dead. We know you were dead. They put you in the tomb. You stayed there for days and now you're here. What does this mean? You can imagine them just peppering him with questions. And he's like, guys, we only have seven miles, okay? I got some stuff I need to tell you. And so it's possible that if he had revealed himself immediately in that moment, they would not have been able to receive the teaching that he needed to give them. And he did give them teaching. We skipped over this kind of section. I encourage you to go read it on your own this week. But this teaching that Jesus gives us is actually summarized in uh, verse number 27. We're going to put this here on the screen. Watch this now. Jesus does give them a teaching. And this is what the teaching is. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that's all it says. Like, I imagine this sermon is pretty important. Like, if Jesus is going to say, all right, let's start in the first book of the Old Testament. We're going to go all the way through to the last book in the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you every single verse that was actually about me all along. I'm thinking to myself, yes, please. I'd like to hear that message. I think that one's going to be kind of important. But instead of telling us the content of the message, the passage simply, it summarizes it. And it says, yeah, Jesus had some really important things to tell him. And you'll never know what it was that he had to say to them on that trip. Oh, that's frustrating. Okay. That really, really bothers me. All right. So it seems like if you kind of track here, the message isn't really the main focus of the passage. In fact, when Jesus is teaching them, the disciples never have this moment where they're like, I think I've heard this stuff before. They're never like, do you recognize that voice? Do you recognize that accent? He sounds kind of familiar, doesn't he? No, it's not until they have a meal together that they actually reckon their eyes are open and they recognize Jesus. And so this is really important. You, you have to understand this. The focus of this passage is not the message. It's the meal. The meal is is the thing that has the meaning. The meal is the thing that causes their eyes to be opened, their perspective to be shifted, and their entire future to be changed. The meal, not the message, is what matters. Now, if you've heard this passage taught before, what you will usually hear, and and basically every time I've ever heard somebody teach on this section of scripture, this is what they say. That basically... The disciples, you know, God had his thing. He kept them from recognizing Jesus. But once they got to the house in Emmaus and they sit down, they're about to have a meal. We notice that there are some very striking parallels between what happens there in this house in Emmaus and what happened with Jesus at the last supper and the other disciples. In fact, if you compare the language that we see here in Luke chapter 24 to a passage like Matthew 26, which tells us about the last supper that Jesus had the Thursday before this event happens, the the wording is almost verbatim the same. Look at Matthew 26, 26. The scripture says, while they're eating, while Jesus and the disciples were eating at the last supper, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. So if we were to compare that verse with the other verses we just read a moment ago, again, it is almost verbatim, the exact same language. It's Jesus doing the breaking of the bread, saying the same things. And so usually what happens when this passage is taught is it's like, okay, when they heard Jesus say the things that he said last Thursday, 
when he did the thing that they saw him do at the Last Supper, it all clicked. The light bulb came on and suddenly they were like, oh, it's been Jesus the whole time. That's the way this passage is normally taught. But there is a major, major problem with that interpretation. At the Last Supper, when Jesus broke bread, he blessed it, gave it to them, said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. These two disciples on the road to Emmaus were not in the room. See, Jesus, I don't know if you know this or not, Jesus kind of had concentric circles of friends or concentric circles of followers. And so the scripture tells us that he had a broad group of 72 people that were called his disciples, 72. This group almost certainly included men and women. They would go out and do ministry alongside of Jesus and the, uh, the 12 apostles. He had this large group of 72 and uh, tradition tells us that the group, uh, rather these two walking to Emmaus were a part of that group of 72. So they were disciples. But then Jesus had within that or from that group of 72, he had a smaller group of 12 who were known as the apostles, right? And then you might not even realize this within the group of 12, he had three that he was especially close to Peter, James, and John. They were kind of like his besties. They hung out all the time. He gave them access to, to different experiences than the rest of them got. And so these disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, they're not merely remembering something that they saw happen a few days before because they never saw it happen. There is something different, something much more interesting that's actually going on in this passage. And you guys, I cannot wait for you to see this connection. Like I haven't preached in five weeks. Okay. (laughs) It's been hard. There is a fire inside of me. And I'm like, boy, I cannot wait for them to see this. I'm in my office this week and I'm writing and I'm worshiping and I'm like, this is so good. Because the meaning of the meal in Luke 24, it goes further back than Thursday of last week. It goes further back than the passage in Matthew 26. In fact, it goes further back than the New Testament. I think if you really want to understand why did God prevent their mind and eyes from seeing Jesus? Why was it this meal that was so valuable and important to them and opened their eyes and changed their perspective and set them on a new course? You got to go all the way back to the beginning. So before we read the passage that I'm going to take you to, I just want, let's take one quick step back and I want to outline what we've already seen in Luke 24. We have two people who are presented with food. When they're given the food, there's some variation of a phrase, take it and eat it. And they say, okay. And when they do, the scripture uses a very particular phrase. It says, as soon as they ate, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized. And in Luke 24, they recognized Christ. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Like if you know the scripture a little bit, you're like, yeah, I think I've heard that before. Look at Genesis chapter number three. Go all the way back to the first passage of the Bible. Scripture says, verse number one, one day the serpent said to the woman Eve, did God really say you must not eat any fruit from the, or eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, yeah, we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll even die. Now the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not certainly die, okay? For God knows that when you eat from it, notice this phrase, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then suddenly the eyes of both of them were opened and they recognized their eyes were opened and they saw something that they didn't see before. They had a new perspective on things. Their eyes were opened and they recognized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings to hide their shame. Then the man and his woman, uh, man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And so they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Whoa. Okay. When you see this many parallels between two passages of scripture, it's not an accident. It's not like, well, that's an interesting coincidence. No, that's intentional. God wants you to see these two passages together. You can't understand the meaning of the meal that Jesus has with the disciples on the road to Emmaus without also understanding the meal that Adam and Eve had in the garden. These two passages are parallel to one another, but not only are they parallel, actually, if you pay close attention, they're kind of inverted to one another. That, that one thing accomplishes something not good, but the other accomplishes something that's truly good. So I want to just here, you can kind of see some of these parallels. You can see some of the differences between these two passages of scripture. In Genesis, we have food. It's fruit. Now listen, it's not about the fruit. You understand that, right? It's about what the fruit represents. It's about the fact that God said, eat any fruit you want, just don't eat that one. And in eating, it's not like they were eating something poison. It's that they were choosing to disobey God. So there's food, it's fruit, but the fruit represents something bigger. There's the statement, take and eat. Notice in Genesis 3, it says that she took the fruit. She took it. It was not given to her. Are you with me? In fact, God withheld it from her. He specifically said, I have not given you this fruit. So she took it. Once she did, and once they ate, the scripture says their eyes were opened. Something changed. There was a shift. When their eyes were opened, the Bible points out that they had a realization, a recognition. They saw things differently than they had before. And this realization in Genesis, it's a realization that they were naked, that they had guilt, that they had shame. That's exactly what it led to. The fact that they ate this fruit, their eyes were opened, they had a new realization, and this new realization led to shame and hiding, disconnection from the God who had created them. Now, with all that in mind, go back to, to Luke 24. This time it's not fruit, it's bread. But it's not about the bread. You realize that, right? It's not magic bread. It's what the bread represents. We'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus gives them the words, take and eat. 
If you're paying really close attention in this passage, you'll notice the scripture specifically highlights the fact that Jesus broke the bread and he gave it to them. They didn't take it. It was made for them. They were supposed to take and eat in this circumstance. When they did, scripture says, their eyes were opened. They had a new recognition. They had a new perspective. What does the scripture say they recognize this time? Not their sin, not their shame, not their guilt, not their stupidity for not even recognizing their rabbi and Messiah. No, they recognized him. The meal opened their eyes to the power, the presence, and the plan that Jesus had for them all along. And then, whereas the meal in the garden led to running and hiding and disconnection, the meal here in Luke 24, it leads to joy. They run seven miles back to Jerusalem in great joy, talking about how excited they are that Jesus really has raised from the dead. They have new hope, new joy, new life, new future that they didn't even realize was possible when they woke up that morning. My friends, we were cursed through fruit, but we are saved through bread. And all the carb lovers said, amen and amen. Don't miss this. In Genesis, take and eat are words of separation. They're words of death. They're words of rebellion. They're words of loss. They're words of despair. But by the time we get to the gospels, Jesus intentionally chooses to use those exact same words, but instead of being words of separation, death, and rebellion, they become words of salvation. They become words of hope. They become words of healing. Our eyes are not open to our sin. Our eyes are opened to our Savior. I'm telling you, the best bite you're going to have this morning is not a cupcake. (laughs) It's a tiny little square of bread. The best drink you're going to have is not a cup of coffee. And I do love coffee. It's going to be a little bit of juice, a reminder of Jesus and his blood, which was shed for us. When we take communion together, my prayer is that your eyes are opened to the beauty and the importance of this tiny little meal. In the same way that, hear me now, cake is always good, okay? And I'm praying that your eyes are opened to recognize that vanilla cake is wonderful, chocolate cake is wonderful, but there is no cake that can compare to carrot cake, okay? It is, it's right up there. I'm praying your eyes are opened. Hey, cake is always good, but birthday cake is even better because birthday cake represents something bigger. Wine is always good, okay? Yes and amen. But communion wine, there's something special about that. There's something satisfying about that. A communion meal can nourish you in a way that sourdough and Syrah never can because it represents our salvation, our healing, 
the irony is that in Genesis 3, it says their eyes were open, but truly their eyes were closed. Their eyes were closed to God. Their eyes were closed to his good plan. Their eyes were closed to his mercy and his grace. It wasn't until the disciples experienced this meal in Luke 24 that we can say, yes, their eyes were truly opened. Oh, I pray that as we partake of communion together, that your eyes are opened and you see God more clearly than you've ever seen him in your entire life. You experience him more intimately, closely than at any point ever in your spiritual journey. I'll direct your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And I'll invite you to take the communion elements that you were given when you came in. Now, maybe you came in late and our ushers might have missed you. So if you didn't get communion elements and you want to participate with us as we take communion, would you slip your hand up? We've got folks here in the back. Um, Please, we've got ushers. They want to make sure that you have what you need in order to participate. And I'll say to those of you guys that are joining us online, I'm so glad that you tuned in for the message. Um, But this is one of the reasons that I would challenge you to be in the room because you miss out on moments like this. You can run to your uh, pantry if you want to and grab some saltines and some Hawaiian punch or something. And you you can take along with us. That's totally fine. But can I encourage you next time be in the room so you can experience this moment with your brothers and sisters together. You're going to notice here in this little prepackaged communion, there are actually two layers that you can peel. If you peel the top cellophane very gently, you're going to find the, the wafer, the cracker. This is unleavened bread. It's more like a cracker than bread as we normally think of it, because that's what Jesus and the disciples would have used in, um, in, in the Last Supper, at the Lord's Supper, okay? And I want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul said. And the Apostle Paul is merely reminding us of what Jesus said there in Matthew 26 from that Thursday before resurrection weekend. That on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. See, all this language is exactly the same again. It's like literally, it's the same that we've seen again and again and again. On the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh God, I pray in this moment that our eyes are opened to you. Not just in this moment, but in the hours, days, weeks, months, and years to come. God, may we see you the way the disciples on the road to Emmaus see you. That God, when you've been present with us in the most recent times, you've been walking beside us and We had no clue you were there. Our eyes were not able to recognize you in the moment. God, could we see you moving forward? Could we sense you in the days to come? And could that give us great joy and excitement, hope and peace, the way that it did to these disciples? I thank you, Jesus, for offering your body for my sins, broken so that I could be made whole. Thank you for that unspeakable gift. And I pray that I would live a transformed life as a result of what you've done. We go on to read. 
verse 25. And if you want, you can peel the next tab and open the juice. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. It is an agreement, an agreement that your sins are no longer counted against you. It's an agreement that no matter what you've done, God still loves you and he's willing to make you right in his sight. It's an agreement that even if you fail him every single day, he will never fail you with his perfect love. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people in agreement confirmed with my blood. So do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus, we bless you for being willing to be the sacrifice that secured the new covenant. That we no longer have to follow the law in order to be loved and accepted. We no longer have to perform in order to know that we have a hope and a future with you. But instead, we can trust in your mercy and grace, your sacrifice on our behalf. And that causes us great joy. It changes the way we think about you, changes the way we think about ourselves and each other. And God, I'm praying that our time, having this meal together today, it would nourish our souls. It would help us to draw close to you. It would open our eyes, give us a bigger sense of who you are, how good you are. God, the plans that you have for each and every one of us and the beauty and meaning of gathering together with one another to celebrate our risen Lord and Savior. We bless you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. In just a moment, my wife is going to come and she's going to talk with you about some ways that maybe you can take your next steps. Maybe today you're like, boy, I, I feel Jesus. I feel God in a way I haven't in a long time. We want to help you on that journey. But I want to point your attention to one final passage of scripture. It's not on the screen or anything. So you can just kind of listen here to what it says. It's Hebrews chapter number 12, verses one to three. And this passage says, so let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And then he says, we do this by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the champion, the author, the finisher and perfecter of our faith, who because of the joy awaiting him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So catch this, the opening of our eyes is God's work of mercy and grace in your life. He does it for you. Thank him for that. Now it's our job to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's opened our eyes so that we see him. Now we keep our gaze transfixed on him and we let him lead us home. 
Oh, man. I am so excited about this fall, you guys. You have no idea the great stuff that I believe God has in store for our church. And hey, even the great stuff that the staff has planned for you. In fact, I want to give you just a brief teaser about where we're going next week. I think this is going to be a blessing to a great many of you. After this Sunday, starting next week, we're still going to be at three services, 9, 1030, and noon. And uh, I would love it if you would choose to come to the 9 a.m., which you did, thank you, um, or to the noon. Okay, the 1030 is going to be the really busy one. So we would love for you to be a part of the bookend services if you're willing to do that. But here's what we're going to do next week. Next week, I'm kicking off a brand new sermon series. It's going to be about seven or eight weeks long, and it's called He Made Them. It's a reference back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And the subtitle or the idea behind this series is the beauty and necessity of male and female in the world, in the home, and in church. So we're going to be talking about all sorts of issues that seem to be kind of conversations that are going on in our world today. Conversations about gender identity and pronoun use in my email signature. And how do I deal with it if I go, I send my kid to first or second grade and they're given a gender wheel. Like, what am I supposed to do? And then in the second part of the series, we're going to be talking about like, what does a Christian marriage really look like? What does a Christian wife really look like? What does a Christian husband really look like? And then we're even going to spend a week or two at the end, and we're going to talk about some of the reasons that we elevate women in leadership here at Connect Church. And I'll show you from the scriptures why we believe this is God's ideal and design. Now, when I mentioned to somebody on our team that I was going to be doing this particular series, their response was, ooh, spicy. (laughs) No, it's not. I have no intention for this to be spicy. I know good and well, because I have these conversations as the pastor of the church, that there are people in the room right now that are transgender, gender non-binary, same-sex attracted. It kind of runs the gamut. All of the LGBTQIA2S uh, um, acronyms. And I want you to know that I love you, and I'm glad you're here. And I'm, I'm not going to say anything to make you feel unwelcome in this place. I'm not. I want you to know that God loves you, that you bear the image of God. We're going to talk about that and that alone next week. And I want to talk to those of you that are Christians. And I want to call you to love people the way that Jesus loved them, which is loving them in spirit and in truth, grace and in truth. In fact, I'll just tell you this. I'm going to go ahead and tip my hand a little bit. There is every bit as much gender confusion in the Christian church as there is out in the world. And we're going to tackle all of it. And we're going to do it lovingly and graciously so that everyone can see what God's desire and design for them is. So I'll ask this. If hearing this causes you to tense up just the tiniest bit, would you trust me? Would you just trust me? For seven years, I've done my best to lead you well in grace and truth, and I won't give up on that in the next six, seven, eight weeks. And if you want to have a conversation ahead of this series, for any reason under the sun, my email address is dan at connectcalgary.ca. That comes straight to me. I don't have somebody filtering my emails, okay? So you send me a message. We can schedule a phone call or a chat this week, and I would be glad to talk with you about any of these things that may come up in the coming weeks, all right? It's going to be good. Oh, and then starting in November, we're doing a series called Get That Bag. We're going to be talking about money and God's plan for it, okay? It's going to be an amazing, amazing fall, and I want you to be a part of every single Sunday. (laughs) 